0: Ghostwatch episode 14, Rob here. On this episode, Brian Scuttle of the Sonic Cinema Podcast joins us to talk about 2012's Cloud Atlas. This is actually a two-part Crossover event. We're going to talk about Cloud Atlas on this feed on Close Watch and then continue discussing the film or more specifically its score over on Sonic Cinema. So keep your eyes out for that episode in the coming days if you're listening to this right as it's being posted. Uh, in the meantime, as always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into part one of my conversation with Brian Scuttle from Sonic Cinema Podcast about 2012's Cloud Atlas. This is the Cloud Atlas Sextet. I doubt there's more than a handful of copies in all of North America. But I know it. That's it. The music from my dream. That whole movement I wrote, imagining us meeting again and again in different lives, in different ages. I can't explain it, but I knew when I opened
1: that door, a powerful déjà vu ran through my bones. I heard it in a dream, as in a nightmarish cafe, and the waitresses they all had the same face. No reason to hide.
0: I know you are Sonmi 451.
1: Yesterday, my life was headed in one direction. Today, it is headed in another. You ever think the universe is against you? Fear. <laughs> Belief, love, phenomena that determine the course of our lives. These forces begin long before we are born and continue after we perish.
0: kind of Welcome to Close Watch, the show where we get to know our guests through the movies they love. On this episode, we're going to be talking about 2012's Cloud Atlas, and I am honored to welcome back to the show, Brian Scuttle of Sonic Cinema Podcast. Welcome. Uh, Robert, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. So tell people all about your podcast, which I guess this is the opportune time to mention that this is the first of sort of a two-part crossover event between our two shows. Yes, indeed. I uh, First of all, thank
1: you as always for having me back, whether it's this or Franchise Detour. When we talk about Spider Man 3, it's always a pleasure to talk, talk to you. Um, so, Silent Cinema is basically a personal blog that I've had going for about 20 years. I've been writing about film for about 25 years. And um, when I started the podcast in 2015, it just seemed like a natural progression from what I've been doing and just from the title of the blog itself, Sonic Cinema, where it's like, it's talking about movies but using it by also embracing movies through a Sonic paying reference paying reverence to them in a Sonic, whether it's my music, whether it is commentaries that we did a podcast just seemed kind of a natural progression and it's really grown into something i'm always really excited to do whether it's me covering festivals whether it's me talking to other critics and podcasters like yourself um it's just been really fascinating to see it grow and evolve over the, over the past few years and yeah i mean we are going to be it this is going to be a bit of a crossover because we're going to be talking about the film as a whole on your podcast, and then we're going to be breaking down a very specific part that has been near and dear to my heart, uh, which we'll talk
0: about as in the uh, as we go along here. Definitely. So we're we, I think, just casually in in Twitter Twitter interactions realized that we shared a mutual love for this film, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary, uh, October 2022, when we're recording this. And uh, it's it's an interesting one, because w- which we'll get into later. I'm going to bring back a segment that we used to do on the Crooked Table podcast called Let's Talk About Six, where we'll discuss the Wachowskis' uh, career and, and kind of our six uh, highlights of their career, ranked for uh, to contextualize where this movie sits within it. But... So, this movie, just to set the table for people, many of whom may not have seen this, which we'll get into, uh, mm-hmm. written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski and Tom uh, Twicker, I think. How do you say it? I've already said Tyker. Tyker makes sense. Nobody has really corrected me on it. So,
1: uh, that, and I mean, he's a German filmmaker. So, I mean, I, that kind of
0: makes, feels like it makes sense. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Really, I own I've seen Run Lola Run, but I actually never seen uh Perfume the Story of a Murderer. But I feel like I need to because I've heard good things over the years. Uh, it's 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 I I will say I've I've not seen Run Lola Run yet, although
1: I do have in the collection. I was really hoping to get to for this record, but I haven't had a chance to. I have seen Perfume though, and I will say I like Cloud Atlas, that is a big meal of a movie that
0: you kind of have to brace yourself for. <laughs> I I had a feeling. <laughs> I think when it came out at the time I was like perfume what? The story of a mer- I don't understand how those two things fit together. But now yeah. as a as a much more evolved cinephile I'm intrigued and and uh, it's also a period film. He we should get we'll get into the structure in a minute, but the budget of this movie is somewhere between 100 and 146 million dollars. It's essentially one of the most expensive independent films ever produced. And the Wachowskis put in seven million dollars of their own money. It opened to nine point six million in the U.S., uh, grossing twenty seven overall and one hundred and thirty globally. And as as is often the case with Wachowskis' movies, this was very polarized uh, for a reaction from critics, not audiences, because many of them, most of them didn't see it, uh, as a, as we sort of just said, but very polarizing reactions from critics. It was on a lot of best-of lists and a lot of worst-of lists, including Time Magazine that named it the worst movie of 2012. Uh, I wanted to read to you briefly a little snippet of what they had to say in there. Cloud Atlas is so much like the bong-fueled conversations I had in college that I almost ordered a Domino's pizza afterward. The problem is there's no emotional hook in this bloated fantasia of special effects and makeup wizardry. The passion is all in the brute labor of adapting david mitchell's novel for the screen. uh so brian why is time magazine wrong and why is this movie something that you are you and i well i mean i'll speak to my own part of it in a minute but why was this movie something you were so passionate about uh discussing um you know it's it's hard to i i think i i think time
1: magazine's wrong in the sense that the there's no emotional connection i think there is a very strong emotional connection that goes throughout especially if you are meaning the film on its own terms um and i think that's the only way you can watch this movie it's really the only way you can watch pretty much any wikowski brother wikowski movie is on its own terms you know whether you're talking about the matrix trilogy whether movies whether you're talking about speed racer or even bound um you you really do have to approach it from the perspective of what are they doing? What is the narrative that? What is the narrative and thematic through line of this film? And I think that was really hard for a lot of people to get in 2012. And I understand it. I mean, I know even even after my first time watching it, and I went opening weekend, I. Uh, it was a movie that I had to sit on it to a certain extent. I had to sit about, sit on it and think about, well, what do I think about this movie? Why and why do I think what I think about? Because there's a lot of complicated things going on in this movie. But it's a movie that the more I thought about, it, the more it just kind of buried itself into my head. And it's, and it's one of those things where I, unfortunately, I didn't make it back to the theaters to see this because I would love to, especially on IMAX. This, this would have be been a tremendous IMAX movie, definitely. But um, I basically did not have, I basically had to wait for it to come on Blu-ray in May, the next May, which was like six, seven months. Yeah, And, you know, that was when it wasn't like there wasn't this hyper speed attempt to get everything on streaming that we see now. And it's like that was that was kind of a brutal seven months for me because I wanted to see this movie again. It's like, how can I see this movie again? And... As soon as I saw it again, as soon as I owned it, i watched it quite regularly. And the more, it's one of those movies where the more I've seen of it, the more I love it. And it's, it's really, I, and I get if this movie just is not on your way. I, I guess you just cannot get on this movie's wavelength. It makes a lot of sense if you don't. But, if you aren't able to, it's it's a movie that I think just has profound beauty in emotion in the way that some of the great films of all time do,
0: yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, i I think my wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, I think we uh, I think we saw this opening weekend, probably because i. The Wachowskis have always been a, a a huge influence on, you know, my interest in film in general. And I've kind of mostly stood by their, their career. I, I I love the vast majority of their films, many of which we'll mention later. And uh, it's they, their careers have been so singular in that every time they make it like basically The Matrix came out and did so well the The sequels came out a few years later, and you know did solid business, although diminishing returns for revolutions. And then since then, it's just been a series of expensive misfires. and i I always admire their their ambition that even when it doesn't a hundred percent work, they're trying something that you've never seen before. They're trying mm-hmm. something very different, very outside, like very outside what a traditional blockbuster. Would be, but with a lot of the trappings of what you expect from a blockbuster. And this one, I think, is is unique in that it's not a a focus storyline. I mean, it is, but it's six different stories set across thousands of years, and uh, it's it's challenging to audiences and in a way that you rarely see nowadays in the studio system or or in 2012. And for me, when I went to see it, I loved this movie. But I didn't watch it for a decade. I had the Blu-ray. I got the Blu-ray when it came out. I meant to watch it. It's also three hours. It's yeah. very dense. It's very complicated. It, it takes a lot of your, it takes a lot of concentration. Like it's not a movie you could put on in the background while you're doing other things. It's not a no. movie you necessarily no. put on to like unwind and on a Friday night, you know, with your significant other. It's not that kind of film. It's, it's it. it takes a different level of engagement. And so it's one that I've meant to get back to and it's grown in esteem in my head in listening to the soundtrack and reading more about it and th- contemplating what I had seen. So then when I put it on for this podcast, I was sucked right back. It's like no time had passed. Like a lot of the moments yeah. w- were etched into my brain, which we'll get into. Uh, and it's it it's the reason that there's another movie, more much more recent, that I had sort of a similar reaction with the, the first time and I didn't put off watching that a second time because I was worried it would be another one of those cloud atlas situations where I, I put it on the shelf for so long that a decade goes by before I revisit it but it wasn't because it wasn't from lack of interest or lack of appreciation for the film it's just it's it a, takes a very you have to come in like you were saying you have to come in with the right mindset so this movie tells obviously like we said six different stories. It's the Warner Brothers on their website describes it very obliquely. Cloud Atlas explores how the actions in individual lives impact uh, one another in the past, present and future as, when, as one soul is shaped from a killer into a hero and an act of kindness ripples across centuries to inspire a revolution. Accurate description of the film. But what, what does this movie mean to you? There's so much going on here, uh, which we'll get into on both of these episodes that we're going to record. Uh, what, what is Cloud Atlas, uh, air quotes, about?
1: So, first of all, we do need to mention that it is adapted by the book by David Mitchell. Uh, so, that right there, I think, tells you a lot because of the fact that what the story, what, the, what the, the framework of Cloud Atlas entails is a very literary idea, which is telling multiple stories along multiple timelines. And, I mean, this is something that goes back generations. I mean, in a way, if you read the Two Towers and Return of the King, they kind of do this thing too, where you know it separates the fellowship, and you get the different storylines of the fellowship separate from one another. So, I mean, if you want, if you want to boil it down that way, that's a good framework. Um, if you've ever seen uh, D.W. Gersh's Intolerance, which is the film he made after the birth of a nation, mm-hmm. and it is a film that, like this one, tells multiple stories with common thematic threads over thousands of years. And in, th- in that case, it's four different stories. It is one of the most staggering pieces of cinema ever, regardless of what you think of Griffith as in terms of his sense of morality, his sense of right and wrong when it comes to race, because birth of a Nation* is blatantly racist. And I think to a certain extent, he was trying to atone for ever since, to a certain extent. Intolerance is about this idea of getting, pat, getting to a point where people who genuine souls have to convince others to reach a place of tolerance about their existence. And it's a fascinating idea. And in a way, Cloud Atlas really deals with this notion as well through its six storylines. I think it's really closer to, I think it's actually closer to like um, 400 or so. It's really not as, it doesn't seem not as far as it seems because after the fall, I think happens in like uh, or it might be six hundred. I can't remember because after the fall, I think I read on Wikipedia is like twenty three hundred year in like twenty three hundred yeah. AD or something like that. So it's really like six hundred, but still, it's a significant amount of time.
0: Right, and and not only that, it's. Uh, cross-cutting from all these different storylines. This was a book, as you mentioned, Mitchell's novel, that was forever deemed, you know, in, in that inadaptable. Like, how do you yeah. possibly turn that into a story? And in pre- preparing for this episode, I came to discover that the filmmakers approached this as one single sort of macro narrative. And I mm. think the way that they're able to weave together these six storylines not only through the casting which we'll get to uh the, and but by like the scene even simple things like the scene transitions the editing there's so many moments where someone's like oh oh you know i need to make a phone call and then cut to a different storyline and the phone rings things like that that it is just it, you're you're immediately engaged in considering how dense and rich this material is it's surprisingly easy to follow once you adapt to that. And this film, like a lot of the Wachowskis' other stuff, has so much self-awareness sort of baked into it, where it literally mm-hmm. opens with, "If you can bear with me, I know this might seem jarring for a moment." You know, yeah. it, it's it's very much uh, directed du- directed at, to the audience. It's like you know, I, I, and I love that sort of uh, that sort of meta commentary on the story that they're telling and the the relationship they establish with the viewer just right up front in the opening minutes. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that's really interesting about this is that, in a way,
1: the film has this, this framing device in terms of an older character play, played by Tom Hanks who we don't really know who he is yeah. yet we just think of him as an old storyteller and he's basically he's basically telling this story and you kind of get the feeling as that introduction starts and there's there's a lot of things that require a tremendous amount of trust in parts of the audience not just because of the fact that it's multiple narratives over hundreds of years but Hanks's character is really speaking this broken English at the beginning. It's hard to really get your head around. Yeah. And that's one of the things where once you when you first see it, it's like, what what is what is he saying? You know, it's one of those things where it's almost like a Christopher Nolan movie where the mix is like making the dialogue indecipherable, except right. it's not the mix, it's just the way that they had hanks deliver these lines as this character and it's really it's really fascinating but the way that it goes from that brief framing device of older this older tom hanks character telling this story to introducing the six stories in rapid-fire succession then we start to spend some more time with each of the stories on an individual basis that that's a brilliant narrative device i mean i get why this film did not receive any oscar nominations i'm so disappointed by yet but this is one of those movies where if any movie is going to get a best film editing Oscar, it is this one for exactly the reason that you talked about in terms of the way the Wachowskis and Tyker cut all of these sequences. And it, you know, and we're going to talk about it a lot in the song cinema part of this episode, but we do have to bring it up here. Music is a tremendous part of this film and this plays and the more you think about this movie the more think the more it plays like a piece of music the way it rises the way it falls the way it keeps going about business here the way different different motifs come in and out play sometimes with different stories that is what an epic piece of music is and
0: them doing that as a fundamental part of the movie is brilliant. It it plays like either either like a, a symphony itself or sort of like an like an epic poem, like you were saying with the recurring yeah. motifs. And uh the more you watch it, again, this is only my second time watching this film, uh, the more you watch it, the more you pick up on on that, on on the different connections between the different characters. Uh one the one that I noticed that I thought was really kind of amusing was when uh, the Jim Broadbent character and I have to I have to look cuz I have on the Wikipedia for this movie they have a very helpful uh breakdown of all the characters that all the actors play so when Cavendish Right cuz otherwise it's hard to keep track of all the names uh so when Cavendish is running out of Aurora House he's like Sorrel Green is people and he's making a big <laughs> joke about it and then later when sanmi 451 discovers that they're literally liquefying the uh the fabricants And feeding them back to them, I I, think that kind of thing is so—it's so baked into this story that it, 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 like you said, like a piece of music, like a a work of literature, like a work of art. It, it, it rewards those repeat viewings uh, immensely, and and it blows me away that one that they were able to to put together these six stories into one cohesive story that actually fits. And thematically have them all uh, be so interlinked without making everything feel messy with using, and we'll get into this on your show more, without, with, while using art as sort of the connective tissue. One thing that, I, that this movie did get when it came out was a little bit of backlash. So I want to I uh, just touch on, because we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the fact that the uh, the makeup in this thing i think mostly holds up for the most part there's a few here and there where you're like ah oh, that looks a little a little yeah. questionable yeah. uh what are your thoughts on the backlash that this movie got for you know having actors playing different genders and also different ethnicities uh yellow face obviously things like that what are you how, what is your response to that backlash and do you think it's justified
1: i i think if you're I think if you are offended by it, I completely understand it, especially the yellow face and the black face and all that stuff. Because like you said, some of that, some, some of that makeup is just horrendous. It's, it's not, it doesn't really hold up. I mean, you look at, uh, Hugh Grant's makeup in the, uh, Neo soul sequence. It's just ridiculous. I mean, and there's, there's other ones here where, You know, I mean, this is something that Hollywood has got to answer for, and rightfully so, for over a century, which is this idea of having white actors play different ethnicities. And look, I mean, it goes all the way back to the stage. I mean, Othello has predominantly been a white person on the stage in blackface. So, I mean, we, you know, it's funny, our mutual friend, Darren Lundberg, and I, we talked about that when we talked about Orson Welles and Othello, Mm because that is of that tradition. Um, I think, while I completely understand if you're offended by it, I also think it's important to look at this film through the context of how it is building narrative. Because there are six, seven, there's like 10 main, 10 or 11 main actors in this movie. Uh, there are six fundamentally main actors in this movie. Jim Sturgis, Ben Wishaw, Halle Berry, Jim Broadbent, Duna Bay, and Tom Hanks. In addition to Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving, Susan Sarandon, Keith David, and James Darcy. Those are the main characters of this. Those are the main actors of this movie. Mm -hmm. The ways in which they have these actors go through these different narratives, playing different characters, is a huge part of what the film is trying to do and trying to get in a way, it, in what it's trying to convey, from a thematic standpoint and a narrative standpoint. In a think, way, yeah. Go ahead. Th- in a way, this movie is dealing with this whole idea of reincarnation, where there are various souls who, you know, once they die, they're sort of bi- they're sort of born into this other soul, and another soul, another soul, another soul, so on and so forth over the years. I mean, the the way it's represented in the film is this tattoo birthmark of a shooting star. And that's, and whoever has that star is the main character of that narrative. And so it's,
0: the movie, well, I definitely the movie uses what? that iconography. Sorry, I I do wanted to jump in. Yeah, I I love how again, sort of like the the uh the scene transitions, it's it's how the movie uses that visual language to make it crystal clear who, who you're rooting for, whose story it is. Like I, I love that so much.
1: Yeah, I mean it's one thing to read this story on the page and think of what these characters would be like who these who these who could play these characters but the the way that they the way the wikowskis and tom tiger um visualize that is essentially as a chamber ensemble and i mean again we come back to this idea of music you know without getting too much into the score The fundamental, the piece that plays throughout this film is the Cloud Atlas sextet. A sextet is a musical piece with six parts. So, how do you how do you represent that in a in a film? You have six six stories. You have six main characters. You have six main actors. I think that last one is the most interesting, and you really do kind of have to look at this as a chamber piece of music, where it's the same performers playing all of the all of the parts and switching off who plays which part in which movie, and not everyone is in every part. And I think it's part of why, when talking about the performances in this movie it's very hard to say as much as i love the performances in this movie it would have been very i can kind of see the Academy if this had catched off got on with craig's i can kind of see the Academy being confused by well how do we honor these these performances because I I think Duna Bay's performance in the Neo-Soul sequence is one of the best of 2012. That doesn't mean I can necessarily say her work in the other two segments that she's in is equal to that. Right. I think Tom Hanks is tremendous in some of his pieces, in some of the sequences, but at the same time, I, I think there are other pieces where he's basically in the, in the background and but I think that's what makes this such a great is such a great uh, playground for an actor because of the fact that it really is challenging them to inhabit different characters and to a certain extent kind of showing us different arcs throughout the film it's really fascinating because I mean, you know, you look at look at Duna Bay. She plays I uh, Adam Ewing's fiancé in the 1849 sequence, where at the end of the movie they decide they're going to become abolitionists against slavery. And in the neo soul sequence, who she becomes, she becomes a symbol of a revolution against essential, essentially slaves, and it's and then you see characters like Halle Berry, where you know she's she's as Louisa Ray, she's somebody who's fighting, who just has this spirit in her to fight for what's right. But in after the fall, she's she's hesitant because of the because of the fact that that's not her station. Her station is basically it it's basically a class issue. And it's really kind of interesting the way that these characters and these actors kind of evolve or stay the same throughout the course of these movies.
0: Yeah. What you were saying about the ensemble nature of this—it's the return of the king issue. It's like no one got nominated for that film because it's, li- it's because it, there's like se- several main characters. It's impossible to do that. And I love that uh, these actors all had the chance to play within six different time periods, six different um, genres, really. Uh, and Ticknor and the Wachowskis split the separate crews, like shooting these movies almost. You know, almost shooting like two different movies in 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 essence by working on all these different segments, sort of yeah. independently and in tandem. And the fact that they were they were initially planning to shoot this chronologically, which is a staggering already the way that they were able to pull this off. Uh, the fact that they were want to do it that way on top of it uh, it boggles it just boggles my mind. And it and it just goes to show how how anti. A normal Hollywood procedure. The Wachowskis and Tick were were thinking with this that they were they were completely you know visionary is a word that gets thrown around a lot in trailers, obviously from the visionary yeah. director of you know the road chip or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, the fact that that this really I feel like is one of those cases where that applies. That had Halle Berry not broken her foot two days before filming, this thing would have been shot sequentially. On top of everything else that's going on. And that would have uh, been insane. It would have been, been insane. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Yeah, exactly. The scheduling <laughs> and the nightmare. I, I I yeah, it's gonna be crazy. The cast here, the fact that everyone gets to play a a hero, a villain, the fact that we get villain like standout villain performances from Hugo Weaving, which again, no surprise. This is the Wachowski's, they know what they're doing with him. Uh, but you, Grant, and Tom Hanks, like, I, I, what do you think this movie has is saying about uh, humanity? About the kind of because it seems to me like it's generally, is it is it saying that people are inherently good, inherently evil? What do you think this movie is uh, kind of its general statement on mankind? And do you think that you do you think that it's sp- more spiritual or religious in in its messaging? I think it's more spiritual. Certainly,
1: um, I, I, because I mean the thing, the thing that uh, you you find is that I mean there are some people who are, uh, who are driven by religious thinking, right? Throughout the film, but at the same time, I think ultimately this is a movie about uh, spiritual matters that are kind of wedded away from religion. Now we can actually now you can. You can argue that in the sequence after the fall, where Somni 451 is basically held up as a deity. But one of the things that's interesting about that is Halle Berry's character basically admits to Zachary, the uh, Tom Hanks character in that movie, in that that story, that Somni was flesh and blood, just, just like him. You know, so there is to a certain extent a parallel to Christ in that way. But ultimately, I think this is about spiritual matters. And I don't know that it's, it certainly does not paint humanity on a definitively good or definitively accept access. I think it's, I think there's a large continuum and there's a large, room for growth throughout, um, throughout the film. Now, that being said, I do think there are actors who the performer, the characters that are played are definitively good and definitively evil. I think yeah. you, you talked about Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving. They are characters. Those are all characters that represent uh, evil in one way or form, one way, shape, or form. And I I think that's kind of interesting. And it's a good use of, like you said, it's a good use of iconography for weaving. I think it's an interesting use of Grant's iconography because of the fact that Grant is, ever since he exploded with Four Wings of a Funeral, he's somebody whose charisma has been a huge selling point of his over the years. There's very few characters, and it's interesting that you have <clears throat> that you have his character, uh, the Reverend, in the M. Ewing's uh, story, who uses his charisma in a way that's very uh, familiar to us and how layered, multi-layered bad guys can be, villains can be. And you see that with Lloyd Hooks as well in the 1973 stuff with Louisa Ray, and then he eventually devolves into just sheer animalistic evil after the fall. And I think that's fascinating. Whereas Hugo Weaving's characters, they kind of work on a spectrum of evil, because has more. Uh, his Ewing's uh, father-in-law, or soon-to-be father-in-law, I guess, or I think, his father-in-law. Um, yeah, yeah. He exactly. is. He's somebody who accepts the world as it is, and he under he recognizes he sees slavery as a natural part of things that you just kind of have to accept. Kesselring is. A conductor who is German who we kind of get the feeling that there's still he he has that sense of uh anti-Semitism that was going through Germany in especially in the way that uh Vivian Ayers talks about his Kessel Ring's relationship with Jacosta, the Ali Berry character, that movie. And then Nurse Nobbs is essentially a comedic version of uh, Louise Fletcher, the late yeah. Louise Fletcher's character, Nurse Ratchet, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But then you have Old George, who is essentially the devil, and I I I love that there's there's this there's this bedrock of evil. But on the other hand, you have Duna Bay and Jim Surges, who I think represent ultimate good, absolute good in their actions and who they are and what's important to them. And so, whether you see them as, you know, people who evolve in their thinking, they ultimately evolve into the in into a more, in they they ultimately come to a place that is more of more accepting of people than, uh, than they start out, and then everybody else essentially is a little bit of that, a little bit in between there, and that's in for Winshaw and Barry Broadbent Hanks. Uh, Susan Sarandon, Keith David, James Tarcy, everything, everybody else is kind of in that middle ground that is really kind of interesting to uh, is really kind of interesting to uh, follow. And so that's one of the other things where I think having having these characters all played by the same cast members I think is important. You kind of would loot You know, you could certainly cast this, you could certainly cast each sequence differently and for the sake of authenticity, for the sake of representation. But at the same time, I feel like you would lose these ideas of good versus evil of some characters, some actors playing characters that represent good, some actors playing representing evil throughout. You would lose that in this movie. And I, I think that's an important part of what the Wachowskis and type were also ultimate, ultimately doing because this is, this is, this makes all the sense that this is a Wachowski film. Cause this is essentially about a lot of the same themes they explored in the matrix. And this is about the moral notion of free will that we as a people should be given the opportunity to make the decisions that we want to lead a good life and lead a better life. And you, you see weakness in Zachary. You see somebody who's not who's more trusting than he should be in Inc., but eventually comes to realize that when he puts his trust in the right hands, he's going to be okay. Frobisher, Robert Frobisher, somebody who is very, he, he's he's a character that he's a con man, but he ultimately um, he he ultimately provides a driving force to inspire good Mm. in so many of these, the characters that are going to come after him. This is something that you would lose if this were cast like a traditional epic, like a Lord of the Rings, like intolerance where you just have different actors playing all these characters.
0: It's interesting, too, with some of what you were saying, the parallels between the different characters. Like you mentioned, Reverend Horrocks is, this is the natural order, this is the way it is. He's fighting to keep things the same in the way that old Georgie is sort of fighting to keep things the same. Like, no, stop her, she's going to, you know... Trying, trying to keep uh, the world from evolving, fighting against yeah. that. And then similarly, you, you would lose the sort of uh, cosmic poetry of it all, the fact that the Jim Sturgis and Duna Bay characters don't end up together for very long in the O'Soul, but do end up you know, fighting against slavery and, and you know, presumably living many years of, of, of happiness and making positive impact on the world. In the 1849 story as Adam Ewing and Tilda yeah. Ewing. So I I it's when that all comes together in the end, it is so satisfying uh to see that. Not to mention the fact that, like we were saying, it gives so many of these actors a chance to work outside of what they're how they're normally typecast. If you look at any interviews of this movie, Hugh grant is like, what? I get to be a, a cannibal chief. Sign me up. Like he's just <laughs> I'm not in a romantic comedy, I get to do something else. Um, plus it's also fun now looking back that this is sort of like a, a pre-union instead of a reunion of you grant Ben Wishaw, and Jim Brogman, who are all in Paddington too. Um, and, and I, I kind of feel like Ben Wishaw th- this feels like his audition for Paddington because he, his narration drives so much of this thing. Uh, yeah. I think this, is it his narration that even opens the film? I feel like it almost might be. It's it's he is the person. predominant narrator. Yeah. He he
1: is the predominant narrator because of the fact that he is the one who who finds Ewing's journal and only gets up to halfway. But he yeah, he's he's the one who's the main narrator in here, which makes the the use of the framing device in uh old Zachary, who we find out is uh, at the end, really kind of interesting, because of the fact that this is essentially a movie about stories being told through the generations. And you really see that you really see that in the fact that James Darcy is playing Rufus Smith through both the the story of Robert Frobisher. As well as the beginning of the Louisa Ray story, and then you know the sextet comes the sextet comes into play, and that becomes music for the movie that plays of Cavendish's story in the Neo Soul, and it's also a choral version that comes up that's basically. It's basically a religious, it, it's basically a religious song mm. uh, that the replicants play, that the replicants sing in the, you know, soul sequence. So and they're going to exaltation or they think exactly. they are, yeah. And it's, it's just really, it's really fascinating the way that this is built. It's fascinating the way that the, and I, I have to imagine this was uh, an actor's dream. I mean, I can't imagine some of the makeup being, you know, this, this isn't a lot of fun. But at the same time, the idea that you get to play different types of characters throughout the years, throughout the generations,
0: has got to be just fascinating. Well, not to mention that you're dealing with, in, in chronological order here, a period drama a kind of tragic romance, a crime like political thriller, sort of, uh, yeah. a a comedy, a, a sci-fi futuristic sci-fi movie, and a post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, thriller. So you're dealing with six different movies essentially. So these actors, it, since the the you know the productions were the two teams were working sort of in tandem. They one day were filming as in, you know, in the post-apocalyptic wasteland and the next day they're in the 1930s, you know, yeah. uh, with their with the fancy waistcoat and all of that. So it's it's um, it's it's the kind of movie that like at on the one hand, I get why it's a high barrier of entry for some you know viewers who might not be willing to engage in a three hour epic that spans, as we said, about 600 years or something but it's also weirdly accessible at the same time and i think that's sort of the magic that this movie pulls off that it shouldn't feel as clear or as clean as it does and yet it all works because that script is so tight because the editing is so strong and because they use that the the birthmark they use the music they use the you know the sort of as we'll get into later uh probably on your show the effect of the, the arts on each time period the fact that even in this movie it feels like some of these characters are aware that it's this is a weird like reference point but it feels to me sort of it always makes me think of like dr manhattan and watchman where he's like oh this is happening and i'm experiencing all these different time periods at the same time some of these characters yeah. feel seem like they're aware i had this dream and there were all these people who look the same sort of connecting to a future that's hundreds of years ahead of them and yeah. a lot of times those characters who sort of get, like, fly a little cl- too close to the sun, it ends up, it, it for some reason it falls, you know, Tom Hanks uh, as, which one that was that? Uh, as Isaac Sachs is, he's like, oh, I, f- yeah. I don't know why I helped you. I just felt like, you know, maybe we knew each other. His plane explodes or... Uh, uh, Vivian Ayers has a, a, a dream about something and a piece of music, and it, and then he loses it, and he, you know his memory it just kind of fades. Things like that, where they're like almost getting there. It's it's this sort of uh, underlying theme here, where even the Luisa Ray character says, you know, i am just tried thinking about why we keep making the same mistakes over and over. Why is humanity so cyclical? Why can't we, mm-hmm. you know, are we progressing or are we just? falling behind And I think this movie ultimately ends on a very hopeful place that hey you know you're not it two steps you know every two steps forward and then a step is a step back but that's one step forward so it's like you know it's the progress is a long slope and ultimately we're you know there's hope for humanity and 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 it puts that on our shoulders it, in the end when uh Maranim is like you know uh, is there a God? Will there be one? I don't know. Maybe someday. There's hope. There's a little bit of hope. It's still there, uh, but in the meantime, we're all doing the best we can. And I, I love that message. And something that a lot of movies don't don't put out there. It's both simple and profound.
1: Well, and the thing is, it it ultimately goes to the uh, Martin Luther King quote words like mm-hmm. the the moral arc of the uh, universe is long, but it always bends towards justice. Right. And I think, you know, and the thing is, it's like, you've got the tragic love story of Frobisher. What would, it, what would his story have been like if he had realized where the second half of Ewing's diary was? Would his story have ended differently because of the fact that, you know, he, Ewing's story for him ends as he's being poisoned. And so he he feels like as he's pulling this sex set out of his himself, he's ultimately moving towards a tragic ending of his own his own making. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you know, the thing about Cavendish is I I love that so much of this is about rebellion against society and Mm -hmm. In, in their own ways, Ewing is rebelling against this system of slavery and this idea of keeping things the status quo when ultimately there are clearly people that there's clearly people who deserve better than what they're getting. You know, Frobisher, yeah, he is ultimately con man in terms of what he is. Uh, he's doing for heirs but ultimately he's somebody who's painted with a very specific brush by heirs as well and so naturally when things don't turn out right he feels like he's got to go to this uh to to this dark place and it basically it basically plays to the tortured artist idea yeah Which we kind of get later in a way with uh, the Tom Hanks character in uh, Cavendish's sequence, where he plays this. Now he plays a different type of creative artist, where he feels like he's entitled to, you know, do what he does to the critic in that sequence, and I, and it's it's really you know it's like. The one thing that I, the note that I put on uh, that one is uh, when he wrote that, I wonder if David Mitchell had the, because uh, this was after Uwe Boll uh, had the boxing matches with his critics. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's right. I couldn't, I wonder if he had that in mind when he was ranked Dermutt uh Hoggins in that sequence because of the fact that like, you know, Uwe Boll was a Big bully. Ultimately, he yeah. he's he's a he's a terrible person, and he's not that talented of a filmmaker. So, Knuckle uh,
0: Sandwich sounds like the
1: name of an ooey vol movie.
0: Oh yeah, actually, completely. <laughs> it, it like if you if
1: he wrote an autobiography of yeah. Empire that's completely what it would be, I think. But um, yeah, and you you just have these ideas that play through the the ages, and it's. It's such a beautiful, it, it, it really is a beautiful piece of music. And this is this is a film, this is why I love it. I can't feel the way about this movie, the way I did about Tarkovsky when I first started to find his work. Uh, my first experience with Tarkovsky was Stalker. And if you've seen Stalker, like this movie, it's not a movie that you put on when you're doing other things. Because you're either doing a disservice by not giving it your full attention or you're going to be giving it your full attention whether you want to or not. Exactly. And um, the same is the case with Andre Woolf. I think with any great epic, that is ultimately what you're going to find is this movie is going to demand your attention. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes cloud atlas
0: such a remarkable film absolutely i i want to i want to get into uh our next segment in a moment but is there a particular character or moment or line of dialogue that stands out to you because there's so many in here for 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 me i think it's probably son mi's uh our lives are not our own that whole yeah whole thing she does that, about because that's that's the, that's the thesis statement of the movie in incarnate yeah i mean
1: that that Yeah, I mean it's it's her it's her sequence it's it's her uh, words that that basically you know and the way that they impact the archivist who's taking her statement Mm -hmm. and I love that I love that little moment between them before she's executed where he goes you must you must have known that this was going to be you know, this, this was going to be your fate. It's like, yes, I did. And it's like, why do you think that anybody is going to believe you? And she says somebody already does. Yep. Meaning, basically implying that the archivist uh, is, it has been subtly moved by her words to take them as truth. And I, I love that moment. The artist in me certainly is engaged by Frobisher, his creation of the Atlas, the sex set. And, you know, hearing, you know, and it, it, you, you have these grand ideas as an artist of, you know, having this great thing pulled out of you, almost against your, you know, it's, it's, it's natural breathing. And, um, you have this sense of, you know, I'm creating this great thing and, uh, you know, it speaks so much about me, but I also love Louisa Ray when she's talking about the sextet and I, I love the store clerk, which Wishop plays when he's describing the sextet because it gets to the purity of what a great piece of music is. And I I think that this that that is something that holds true with this film as well.
0: Absolutely, no, it's it it is a film that has so much to say, and and I hope one that people after they hear our, our episodes, hopefully, will find somewhere and check out because it's it's woefully underseen. Uh, yeah, but you know the Wachowskis have been involved in a, a lot of wildly ambitious projects like this over the years, but. Uh, Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six, baby. Let's talk about Flicks and me. Let's talk about what the good films and the bad films are to me. Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six. So this is a segment that I used to do for the Crooked Table podcast, which is this this feed it used to be a long time ago. Uh, and i and I was thinking about bringing it back for this show. And I can't imagine a better opportunity to bring back a segment centered around uh, a a list of six things than a film about six stories, about the Cloud Atlas sextet, about these six characters throughout time. So I wanted to briefly run through our top six favorite, best, whatever you want, whatever you want to label it with uh, projects that the Wachowskis have been involved in. I will pre... uh, yeah, I will. I will just disclaimer on this. I have not seen Sense Eight, and I'm not really counting that. I'm mostly looking at movies. I know that this is, a lot of ways, a kind of a precursor to their work on Sense Those group of characters who are connected and it transcends, you know, space and all that other stuff. So it's very much something I, I intend to look into at some point. I know also Tikwer and Mitchell were involved in that show at varying points, uh, but. This we can include any films that were directed, written, or produced by Lana and or Lily Wachowski. So Brian, I wanted to hand it over to you for your number six. So my number six is their
1: directorial debut. I rewatched it last year in Gang Ray for uh in going over the films of nineteen ninety-six is their uh film noir bound. Um this is this is it's arguably the least ambitious movie of their filmography, but it's also one that deals with the idea of identity, which we haven't even covered at Cloud Atlas because I, I, I mean, we kind of have, but at the same time, it's, it's because of the fact that we're talking about the Wachowski sisters. It's, it's fundamental to who they are because they were not they they did not go by the names that they went by when they made Bound. And that idea of, identif- of figuring out your own identity, of having people in your life that impact your, that inspire your actions, as well as just making a crazy, sexy film noir. I mean, Bound is really it's a movie that when I first saw it 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 kind of bounced off of me I wasn't really that high on but I I do really like it now and uh it's I I
0: do have to put in my number six here excellent uh my number six coming in with the hot takes right right off the bat uh I I feel like I have to stump for this movie because so few do uh and I will briefly <laughs> discuss why I guess yeah, and number six, I had The Matrix Resurrections. And I know a lot of people do not care for this movie, and I get it. It's like Cloud Atlas, and that if this is not for you, I did a whole I actually did a sort of stream of consciousness review of The Matrix Resurrections that you can find on the franchise Detourist feed for an hour where, like in real time, I was sorting through my thoughts and and explaining them. Uh, I think that movie, while not as uh, nearly as strong as the original film, it has a lot to say, similar to to uh, Cloud Atlas, about the power of love, about the power of, of hope, about these characters sort of giving them a a, a more a more open ended and more uplifting finale for these characters' arcs. I love the metatextualness of what it says about our interaction with uh, the media, with technology, and how it's sort of self reflexive on itself where literally they're referencing the fourth matrix game in the movie and i know that's a little too on the nose for a lot of critics but i'm such a sucker for this franchise and i feel like it brings something fresh to it in a way that the second and third films didn't so that's that's my number six the matrix resurrections uh what is your number five brian
1: so speaking of hot takes um my 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 number five is and it's going to be an unpopular take um, But if you know my history with the film, you 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 know that this this makes a lot of sense for me. It is it is the nineteen ninety nine Matrix. It's the original Matrix. I I've come to like it more over the years. It's a movie that's grown on me. It's a movie that I appreciate more on its own terms than I did in nineteen ninety nine. When I saw it in nineteen ninety nine, I'm like, well, this is just a version of. Dark City that I'm not a big fan of. Um I thought it was too pretentious. I thought it was too, you know, full of itself. And ultimately it devolved into a big dumb action movie. Um, but that being said, I I I enjoy it a lot more now than I used to. And it's it's got it it really sets in motion a lot of the things that we're going to see. Even more so than Bound. It, it sets in motion a lot of the ideas, a lot of the themes that we're going to get from the Wachowskis moving forward from the Matrix on into over the years. And I, it, it's a movie that I don't hold on quite the pedestal that I know a lot of people do, but it is a movie that I've come to appreciate for what it does.
0: No, that's totally fair. The, earlier this year, I. Uh... I watched Ghost in the Shell for the first time and it was startling how much the Wachowskis, let's say, borrowed from yeah. Ghost in the Shell for The <laughs> Matrix. Uh, and I think it's it's so much of, so much of uh, your appreciation for these movies, yeah. for any movies, comes from when you see it, at what point in your life and what you've seen before and what you've seen after. So, I mean, I totally get that. Uh, yeah. My number five, I have Speed Racer because I think this movie is, Again, woefully underseen and represented. I I actually have covered that on uh, this feed when it was, I believe, still the Cricket Table podcast. And I I think that movie is talk about a vision is so so different from anything that the Wachowskis have done. But then yet also fits so much within their themes of of bucking the establishment of you know uh, uniting mm-hmm. with you know your people that love you and all this other stuff. Like it's it's very cheesy in a lot of ways, but I feel like. There's there's a lot of uh there's a lot more meat to that story than people give it credit for thematically plus the whole candy colored like psychedelic visual palette that they use I think is really is really uh is really distinctive plus not to mention I think John Goodman is really strong in that movie. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I yeah. No, I I will we'll, we'll, we might be bringing this up again later. Ah, uh-huh, there you go. <laughs>
0: what is your number 4?
1: So, so my number four is the Matrix Resurrections. Um, I I I really wish I got the chance to rewatch it for before this podcast because uh in addition because David Mitchell was one of the uh screenwriters on it for mm-hmm. story, but also the composers uh carry over from uh Cloud Atlas to Resurrections. And I think both of those are important. Um But the thing that I like about Resurrections is a lot of the stuff that you talked about earlier. How meta-textual it is, how it continues the narratives from how it expands the narratives of uh, Neo and Trinity from the original trilogy and the way, what it says about that what it says about that story and Ultimately, about fighting against the programming that we, you know, sometimes find ourselves embracing to a certain extent, and I I think that's that's one of the things that's so fascinating about it. It's something I really identify, I re- really resonated with when I saw it in December,
0: and I I do want to give it another uh, rewatch. I feel like it's one of those movies that will probably age better than people think it will uh yeah i I think also coming in soon after you know was still dealing with covid and all of that the sort of depression that thomas anderson is is dealing with and this sort of sense of isolation and there's something wrong with the world like it takes so many of the themes from the original film and applies them in a different way uh and yeah Yeah. i I agree i don't know if you heard i i had a a, i don't know if the mic picked it up but there was an audible gasp when you said that i was like (gasps) The Matrix Resurrections. I forgot you were a supporter of it as well. There are dozens <laughs> of us, Brian. Dozens Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so for my number four, I oh, I had Be for Vendetta, which the Wachowskis did not direct. I mean, there, there were second unit directors on it, apparently uncredited, but they did write, they did produce, so I'm counting it as part of their filmography. Just a, speaking of so many of the themes that we're talking about, about anti-authoritarianism, about causing a revolution i thought a really strong performance from yugo weaving and natalie portman and yes it's the wachowskis essentially doing a sort of 1984 uh you know meets the matrix but what's wrong with that is my question um so I, it's a film i haven't seen lately I've ne- i've been meaning to go revisit it had i gotten a chance to watch it again like you and bound for this episode, my ranking here may have shifted slightly, but it's always a movie that I've held in high esteem, and I think it's it deserves inclusion among you know some of their best works. Yeah, so my number three,
1: we'll we'll go ahead and go into my number three because it is your number yeah. four, and oh, that is oh, yeah. um, I I love this movie, and I think this was because I was not I was not particularly high on the Wachowskis after The Matrix trilogy. It wasn't just because of the Quality of the sequels, although I did, I did. Kind of, it's funny because I kind of appreciate how by Matrix Revolutions it basically just gave in to being kind of big, dumb action movie as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to be something more philosophical. Uh, but Viva Vendetta was really the moment where I kind of started to shift. Um, it's yet another adaptation of an Almore graphic novel that he absolutely despises but the fact is you you were right this is essentially the matrix via by, by way of 1984 and the way it deals with authoritarian is the way it deals with uh you know showing fascism that there is no place for it in society i i think that is you know and especially as somebody who this came out like at the height of the Bush era where people were disillusioned about the war in Iraq. People were feeling like that white house was essentially working unchecked. And it felt like society was not checking it on its own terms. And that, I know that's part of it. You know, I mean part of it is political for me where it's like I I felt this movie sense of rebellion, the the need to show people in turn. Now, little did we know that almost a decade later we were going to get arguably more authoritative uh president in office, but you know, uh it's it's one of those things is hindsight is by twenty-twenty. Um but V for Vendetta is, it's a terrific action movie. And I, this is one of, I I think, not only is it a great Hugo Weaving performance as V, it is, it is a great performance by Natalie Portman.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, This was her, one of her first roles after the Star Wars prequels. And seeing her in this, you really kind of lamented how she wasn't really used the way she could have been in those movies, and th- this was this was one of those things where it's like, okay, this is how you could use her in an action movie, and uh, you know that was didn't have her as an eleven-year-old like in the professional. But the fact is, it's like you could see her in that type of story with depth and political depth and narrative in the bag depth that would be engaging and so yeah my number three is V for vendetta i i've always loved it and it's a great dario marinelli score uh i i thought was yeah. tremendous.
0: yeah there's a reason we're we're saying a lot of the same titles at this point um speaking of which number three i had bound because uh, it's their first of our, first of all it's their first film and like reservoir dogs for tarantino like you know i, I, I don't even, i guess following is nolan's first film but like i tend to think memento is more laying the groundwork for everything right. he has going right. forward this is this is the foundation of everything you would see from them it's their interest in film noir it's a lot of the same themes as you were saying about identity about rebelling against the system uh, but in a in a smaller scale, it's before they got Matrix money. It's before they got you know 150 million dollars to tell a sprawling story across hundreds of years. Uh, before yeah. Warner Brothers was completely committed to everything Wachowski, uh, and you still see their their not only skill as as writers but also directors here on play. I think Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon are outstanding in it. Joe Pentiliano especially, and it's just. A really fascinating little thriller that you know you could see right from the off that that these filmmakers have something special. And whether you, you know, celebrate or lament the fact that they've leaned so hard onto sci-fi and things like that, that's debatable. But it's they they clearly emerged on the scene as filmmakers with something to say. And it's one that I need to go back, like Beaver Vendetta. A lot of these I, I need to go back and revisit because it's been a, a bit. Uh, But, again, still one that is clearly one of their, you know, one of their highest achievements, especially as their first film. Yeah. Um,
1: No, absolutely. And, I mean, yeah, you you brought Tilly and Dershon. They're they're wonderful. And one of the things I think that really, especially having seen it a couple of times now since that first time in 1996, 97, wherever it was, is you see that they have real empathy for the characters that they're portraying. I mean, even they even to a certain extent to Panthleano's character here. And I think that's one of the interesting things because I mean he, he's essentially a cog in the system, right? But he's still a bastard. And I, I think that's one of the things that really is kind of important in this. But yeah, Bound is, it's in the, from a visual standpoint, too, you kind of get a sense of where they're going to head with the Matrix and other films.
0: Absolutely. Brian, what is your number two runner up uh, film here? So my number two is Speed Racer. Um, I, if you know me,
1: you, you know, I, I have a soft spot for the underdog sports movie genre. And this fits right into it in the wildest and most endearing way. Yeah. Um, this was really, this was, this and V for Vendetta was really where I started to turn around and start to think, okay, maybe I'm starting to get the Wachowskis a bit more. And I love that this ties into everything we've talked about thematically about all of the films we've talked about today but it's also just a really great underdog movie i mean even though clearly speed racers better everybody out there it's it he just he's the underdog because he's the underdog against a system that is determined to beat him down and that's that's one of the things that I love about this movie. And also you you mentioned the visual pop. This movie was a joy to watch on IMAX if you got to see it on IMAX. And the Michael G. Chino score not only yes. does it use a not only does it use the original theme and the original music terrifically, it's just an exciting score in its own terms. And I I love this movie. It's yeah. it's it's I'll I'll second you and John Goodman. I I think my one of my favorite moments from this is him obviously talking to Speed Racer about what inspired him to start racing. But I also love Susan Sarandon as his mother telling him about what it's like to watch him race. And that montage at the end when he starts back up and gets basically goes supersonic towards the finish line. It's one of my favorite montages in movie history.
0: It's it, it, this is a a movie that's based on an anime cartoon. It's it, it, both the 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 uh, the series and the film feature a little boy and a monkey doing ridiculous things, and yet, and yet, <laughs> uh, I get emotional multiple times yeah. with this movie. When I recorded that episode with uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, it's it was. We were both like getting like chills while we were just describing the the very sequences you're mentioning. Like it, it, yeah. you it, you don't expect that in a movie called Speed Racer, and yet somehow the the story crescendos in a way that you're like getting like tingly when that when that when that final lap of the race happens, and you're getting all this you know intercut footage of Rex and all. yeah, it's it's a great movie, and I think people. You know, people maybe wrote it off as, oh, it's just silly or whatever. I don't know. I don't understand why. I think most people probably didn't see it. Again, this is this, the Wachowskis have a history of wildly ambitious, incredibly underrated box office flops. And it's very frustrating as a person who's been on board essentially since the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. In my number two, I had. Cloud Atlas. Not surprising because of what my number, my number one is. Um, I I love this movie, and if it, w- it were it not were the, were it not from the same filmmakers that did my number one, um, this would be my number one because yeah. for all the reasons we've said, it's so rich, it's so complex, it's so. Uh, um, I I describe movies like this as sort of life-affirming. Like, you watch that and you're like, ah, oh, that's the nurturing that I great art gives you where afterwards you you feel energized, you feel... It feels cliche to say, but you feel sort of reborn. You're like, oh, I see things from a new perspective, if only for a little while. And I think Cloud Atlas has that that power to it. And it it feels silly to go into super detail about it because of what your number one obviously is and because we've spent a lot of time talking about it. But that
1: there it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. It's like I almost want to switch up my number one just for the hell it. But, of course, my number one is Cloud Atlas. Um, oh, you mean it's not Ninja know, Assassin? Or, uh... uh oh, God. Matrix i Ninja <laughs> Assassin, but, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to say The Matrix Reload just because of the fact that I just love how batshit crazy that architect sequence is. Yes, but, yeah. um... No, of course it's Cloud Atlas. I mean, there's a reason that I've wanted to talk about this movie with you. And, you know, I, I definitely use this as a summation of what we've been talking about on this episode about this movie. I I have to bring up the cinematography by John Toll and Frank Reeb. Uh John Toll has been a cinematographer I've known about for ages because of his back-to-back Oscars on Legends of the Fall brave He has he's always had a tremendous eye for not only lensing the epic but the intimate. Um, I I love the little dark comedy with Cavendish. That plays out, yeah. and it's it's this twisted version of one flow over a cuckoo's nest, and Broadbent it is it brings out the best in what Broadbent is as a performer. That is, it's 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 diametrically opposed to the way he does his Vivian airs, but makes what he does his errors more impressive because of the fact that you see somebody who in another life, I uh, has that romantic feel for the written work and for art in the ways that he thinks about his lost love. Who's played by Susan Sarandon. Um We haven't talked about Susan Sarandon in this movie. She is, she, she, has very small roles. She doesn't really have big roles in this. And that's interesting to have one of the more bigger names in the movie not really play a big role in it. She basically has little moments where she's there to impart wisdom. And I I really love that about her. Halle Berry is wonderful in this movie. Uh, I, I love that this is, I, I think this is, this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Like not, not even joking. This is, this is, I, I do not say that lightly. This is by far the best movie you and I have talked about on one of these podcasts. Um, And it's, it's a movie that's just stuck with me in a really profound way. And I, I, I just absolutely love that. I I love thinking about it. I love watching it again, and it it just is something that really has gotten into my soul. I really love it.
0: Yeah, it's if if I had to, to s- summarize my my thoughts on Cloud Atlas and like you know, pull quote style, it would be a staggering achievement because everything this movie does on a narrative level, on a technical level, on a musical level, on a performance level is so, it's so mind blowing. Like it's, it's, it feels like nothing else you've ever seen. And yet it feels part and parcel of everything you've ever seen at the same time. Uh, and, and that's why I'm not planning on waiting another decade to rewatch it because it, it was, it like I said, it, re, it rewards those revisits and it gives you the, that post uh, masterpiece sort of glow coming off of watching it. Like I sat there for most of the credits afterwards and just like let it sink in and absorbed uh, as the, the, you know, the theme was playing. Uh, and yet my number one is The Matrix, as anyone who knows me or follows me on Twitter will know. And it's because of, I was laying the groundwork up front. It's because of when I saw that, that was the movie that made me a cinephile. That was the movie that drew me into the artistry of filmmaking, to to, to uh, all, all, all of the influences that were synthesized in that movie and then spit back out onto pop culture and reverberated out in both positive and negative ways. Uh, I think it, it had a profound effect on me, and that's why, even though objectively Cloud Atlas more impressive as, as a film, The Matrix is my favorite because of the, yeah. um, the personal impact it's had on me. And that's that's the thing of, of about movies, and I think that's why you and I are both like maybe bristle sometimes at at the the, uh, the terms best because it's like what is that. Best, you, what I think is best, and what you think are, is best is completely different thing. By what criteria? It's it's all yeah. depends on your unique lens, and that's why having people, different guests on the show, and having them bring their thoughts on these films is so is so fascinating. Because we just spent over an hour talking about a movie that a lot of people will be like, eh, it's boring, and flips and switch to like Real Housewives or whatever else they might be into that's less challenging or more their speed, and that's like we we're saying, totally fair. Wachowski's. Not for everyone, but for people like us who are who looking for that sort of depth in their storyline and are willing to let what, what is sometimes sort of a slow thematic burn, uh, you know, uh, I guess catch fire, uh, I, I, you know, we have these movies for us. I, I did want to briefly point out the films that neither of us mentioned, uh, Assassins, which was written by the Wachowskis, but I think similarly, or, or the, since then, sort of disowned because of the way it turned out. Um, yeah. Which is a shame because I, I I really
1: kind of wanted to put that in my number six because I I adore Richard Donner as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and I I think that's actually a pretty decent movie, but yeah, it's it's it it's it's not number six worthy of
0: Rebound for me. I can't put it up there. Yeah. Uh, the animatrix and is more of a to video series of vignettes and they were they were involved in some of those uh, as you know they wrote and produced they produced the film obviously but they wrote the uh, the backstory ones that the ones that tie into yeah. uh, the matrix reloaded and then the the sort of Grant's story of how the machine uprising took place that I think is a fascinating watch. If you're looking for more, uh, more Matrix backstory and what that world is like uh, in different applications, uh, we mm. we neither neither of us mentioned Reloaded or Revolutions. I think we both agree, impressive in some degree, but also ultimately sort of I feel like fall under the weight of their own ambition in in places. Yeah, uh, I love the way that the second one upends traditional narrative structure by being like, hey, you know that whole. Chosen one thing, yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> We're gonna start from <laughs> scratch. But then I feel like Revolution sort of dropped the ball, and like you said, just devolved into just kind of a sci-fi action film. Uh, the uh, Ninja Assassin we mentioned briefly, and the only Wachowski movie that I I still can't get behind is Jupiter Ascending. I'm I've seen it yeah. a couple times, and I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> I I've I, I, I like gone old- a bridge too far for me yeah
1: i mean talking about jupiter ascending a little bit i mean i i do think there's a, i think there's a lot of interesting ambition there yes i but yeah like like you i can't get behind it i mean not the least of which is because of the fact that i i think eddie redmayne's performance in that movie is just simply atrocious right it's it's gloriously over the top acting um no, I mean you brought up the Matrix, and I will admit I did kind of wrestle with that one because of the fact that I do. I think in terms of the ideas of the Matrix, I think that might that collection might be my favorite exploration of the ideas of the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think they're even the ones that the Wachowskis were not a part of. I I think they're. I think there are some really interesting ideas that they explore that I wish we got more of in the movie, in the movies. But you kind of see it a little bit more in Resurrection. So that was good. But at the same time, it's, it's one of those things where it's like I, I always, for a long time, thought the Matrix was like arguably my favorite piece of uh, media liking to the Matrix franchise.
0: Yeah, it's the the ideas introduced in that first film are so multifaceted, and the movies are so focused on Neo and Trinity that they they don't really get a chance to color outside those lines very often. But yeah, uh, that's our our ranking of the six Wachowski films that that people should check out, including Cloud Atlas. Uh, I normally this is where I tell people <laughs> or or I have my guests recommend other movies that people can can check out. We just did that. If you like Cloud Atlas, go find these other movies. If you like those other movies, go find Cloud Atlas. One thing I would uh, one thing I would add that movie that I, I said at the top of the show that was more recent that I had a similar sort of experience with watching the first time is everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, because, yeah. like this movie, I feel like it challenges viewers to be engaged at a degree that they're not normally challenged to these days in our, mm-hmm. you know, uh, reboot-heavy culture. It uh, it it tells multiple uh, sort of storylines, sort of intertwined, only that's across universes instead of across time, and it, it, they're both they both have that sort of humanistic uh, underpinning on an epic scale and tie together multiple genres. So. That's I think the closest recent example I could think to something like Cloud Atlas. I, I think that I think that is completely uh valid
1: and it's interesting because of the fact that um I am very if if you follow me on the letterbots, you know I'm very, very stingy with the five star rating. Yeah. I know there there are some there are a lot of people who give it out like candy. Um and you know, that's 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 fine, you know, whatever. However, you feel bad movie, that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. After 40, 30 plus years of thinking about movies, obsessing about movies, I, I have very strict standards when it comes to five-star movies. Um everywhere, everything, everywhere, everything all at once is the First movie since Cloud Atlas, they gave five stars. And so you pairing those, A, I think is completely appropriate because of the fact that I think they do have a lot in common in terms of what they say. But it makes a lot of sense because those are, those are honestly movies that really change your perception of what's possible in terms of storytelling. And uh, yeah. It's, it's, I, anytime I get a chance to talk about cloud Atlas I will, um, I, and that includes my own apps,
0: my own podcast, which we what, will, uh, which will be continuing here. What a good segue, Brian. I was just going to say to, uh, to wrap up this episode, first of all, thank you so much for coming on to talk about cloud Atlas on close watch, tell people where they can find you and your show and the second half of this conversation on social media. So, uh,
1: the main hub for Song Cinema is wwwsong cinemacom Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Lemur S-K-U-T-L-E-L-E-M-U-R. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, Song Cinema group where I basically publish all, all of our, where I basically post links, all of our reviews, um, Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, wherever you listen to podcasts, pretty much uh, that's where you find the songs in podcast. But mainly, wwwsonic cinemacom
0: Awesome! Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on back on on Close Watch to talk about Cloud Atlas. If people want to hear us talk more about this, if you haven't gotten enough Cloud Atlas content from the two of us. Uh, definitely go over and subscribe and listen to Sonic Cinema Podcast. That episode will be up, uh, I think we said, a week after this one goes live. So yeah, around this time, either get subscribed now. It's either there or it will be there shortly. So we will see yeah. you over on Brian's show, Sonic Cinema. Big thanks to Brian Scuttle from the Sonic Cinema Podcast for joining me on Close Watch to discuss 2012's Cloud Atlas. Obviously, as I mentioned a couple of times in this episode, you can hear the second part of this conversation where we dig into more specifically the score of Cloud Atlas and its integral role in the story in this complex, interwoven six-part story uh, over on the Sonic Cinema Podcast. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram, as well as at on email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Keep watching, everybody.
1: This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. F-Z-R-O-O-K-E-D.